Lord Jesus, thank you for all of your good gifts to us. And we thank you, Lord, for the good gift of, of stories and movies in the way um, you can speak to us through them. And so we ask now, Lord, that you would indeed be at work this morning in our hearts as we look to some of the things that our culture is saying and some of the stories that are being told. Lord, would you give us eyes to see your story in the midst of it? And then would you even speak your story, your gospel story, to others who don't know you, who might not be in church through some of these films? And we ask this for your glory's sake and in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. So if you've been tracking with me, this is part three of three, sort of, but they each are meant to stand alone. So this is my third class on Heroes and and on film this summer. So I was looking, and why did I do this? If you followed along, the reason I did this was because I like to look at movies and I like to look at them theologically, but this winter, all of the movies that were nominated for Oscars were so dark that I thought, okay, we've got to look at something a little more lighthearted. So this summer I've done three installments. The first installment was about superheroes and the way we look up to superheroes, and especially the young ones among us, if you have children or grandchildren who are into superheroes. Um, then I looked, last week I looked at romantic heroes and that ideal of um, the romantic ideal embodied in another person and how films kind of encourage that. Or some can be really helpful about Um, discouraging that ideal and helping us look at the real person who's actually next to us and loving them the way that um, Christ loves us, his church. So I looked at that last week. And then this week I thought I'd look at stories, movies that are based on a true story. And there have been, obviously I'm saying films that are on DVD because how many of us in these hot afternoons don't want to do anything outside and so we're probably not going to the red box to get a DVD. We're probably streaming something on Amazon Prime or on iTunes or something like that. But it's a good way to occupy our children and occupy ourselves on days off where you can't really get out and do anything. So so that's why on DVD. And just a big picture question, why story, why film in general? Well, film is one of our culture's ways of telling stories. It's our pop culture medium through which we tell the most stories to, to the widest audience. You just think how much Hollywood produces in one year. And in scripture, we see that stories are incredibly valuable throughout. And in fact, most of scripture is in the genre of storytelling, narrative. And then we see in Jesus' own ministry how he tells stories. He tells parables, right, which are just stories to help people get to see these eternal truths about the kingdom of God, especially. Well, so... What kind of stories are we looking at this morning? I'd say I kind of have picked out from the movies I've seen in the last few weeks, and they're all recent movies from the last few years, I've picked out three kinds of narratives. There's the can-do narrative. There's the they-did-but-they-shouldn't-have narrative. And then there's the can't-do-help-me narrative. And so I'm going to look first at um, my least favorite of these, which is the can-do narrative. Um, So uh, let's just think about that. How many of us have noticed that there's reality TV has made such, it's kind of going down now, it's waning, but there was such a big bump in it in the late 90s, in the early aughts, when you couldn't even find a TV show that had a story in it that was fictional. It was all regular people making fools out of themselves on TV, right? Thank you. 
Welcome. Well, so I have a couple of different narratives that I think are found within that. There's the, and I relate these reality TVs to the uh, TV shows to these films that tell true stories, right? So there's that. Um, maybe I have a treasure hiding in my basement. I think that's probably um, my parents' favorite genre because they have so many antiques that they're thinking, surely this is going to pay for our retirement. This one, no, this one is going to be amazing. So there's the Antique Roadshow and then American Pickers and Pawn Stars, all of these things that have spawned from this idea of maybe I have something really valuable hidden away that no one ever knew about and I'm gonna, I'm, it's going to be a great story to tell. I'm going to have something um, big to show for it. And so when we watch those shows, we, we're encouraged to think this too could be me. There's also, um, these are not my favorite, but if I can work, if they can work hard enough, that person up there on the screen, and train hard enough to be able to succeed in this crazy uh, athletic contest, then I probably could too. I just haven't put in the effort. I'm sitting here on my couch, but I also could be an American gladiator or American ninja warrior or when it comes to music and dance, I'm an American idol. Or my favorite one is So You Think You Can Dance because my dance background, I was always like, you know, if I'd really, tra- if I'd really kept with it, I could have been there on the screen with them. I just think it's so funny. Don't we feel that way when we're sitting on the couch and we see that and we think, yeah, maybe I could do that. My voice is pretty good. I might be able to be on that show. Wouldn't that be neat? So we see there are different psychologists who've looked at this phenomenon, and there are a couple of different like psychological phenomenons going on when we look at the person on the screen and we sort of are intrigued to look into their life when it's a real person. That's called trait voyeurism, this idea that um, you get to see the underneath. You get to see what's actually going on in their lives. You get to peek behind the curtain, and you see that in, um, especially in so you, um, the other one, not so you think you can an- dance, but what's the one with the stars? Dancing. Dancing with the stars, right? Because they show everything up front, and then you go around the background, although they do it with American Idol, too, with all of those one-on-one interviews with all the stars. You, you know, they ask them, what's going on, what's going through your mind right now? How are you, what would your mom say? You know, all of these things, you get the internal struggles. You get to see in that voyeurism. You get to see into what's going on. But then there's this other aspect, and I've already touched on this a little bit, this social comparison, which involves gauging ourselves against them, looking at them on the screen and saying, I could do that, maybe. Maybe I could be like them. Or, um, or what we see also is this pulling away of, can you believe they did that? And that's where some of the real trashy reality shows come into play, where you, you know maybe it's the Kardashians or whatever it is, when you see what's going on on the screen, you say, can you believe what they're doing? These are real life people, and they're actually doing that. Can you believe it? And that, I would say, falls more into the category, my second category, they did, but they shouldn't have. But so let's keep looking at Can Do. One of the films that came out this year, or it was in, it was in theaters in 2015, and it was interesting. I thought it was going to be, I thought it was going to be better than it was because it's the same director as Silver Linings Playlist and part of the same cast. So it has Jennifer Lawrence and is it, what's his, Bradley Cooper? Yeah. And they're in it again. So here's, it, the sound is a little bit low on this one, so let's do what we can with it. Hi. Oh, it's, hold on. This is, I don't want to show you. We have them back, Terry. Hold on. 
These are lots of clips. I just want to show you one clip. So you get to watch. You get to see all that preview of. Okay. I'm in a meeting with our lawyers. Can you hear it? Go home, Joey, and watch the numbers rolling in on television. Let me just preface it by saying she's a single mom, a housewife taking care of both her divorced mother, her divorced parents, who are now suddenly living in her home. Her divorced husband lives in the basement also with her father, whose girlfriend just broke up with him and kicked him out of the house. And so she's just totally overwhelmed. She works as a, um, an airline agent, a ticket agent at an airline. And she has two children. And she is just completely overwhelmed, but she was valedictorian in high school. She had all these great ideas that she never got to put out there. And so her latest idea, and this is a true story, based on a true story, her latest idea is to make this self-ringing mop, which maybe the ladies know, but that's the only kind of mop to get. Like, you don't want to touch the mop. You don't want to touch the mop at all. But she had the idea of making this mop where you didn't have to touch the mop head. And so this is talking about in the 90s how she first got it sold and went big on the business. And she had tried to get, Bradley Anderson works for QVC, and so they had started to sell it on QVC, but Joan Rivers was not selling the mop, or someone famous like that was not selling the mop as well as she thought she could sell the mop. And so here's what she's She's going to go get them. Look at her can-do spirit in this. Make 50,000 mops, borrowing and owing every dollar, including your home. You couldn't do anything better. I would have tied up another shot. I don't want Todd or anyone else to try it. It should be me. You know there are many other people we have who have to do this for as long as we do this for a Who showed you the mops? Who sold it to you? Who taught you how to use it? And who convinced you that it was great that you thought it was worth it? Excuse me, who did this? It's going to keep going. She's tough. So she's quoting back to him things that he had told her when they first approached, when he first got sold on this idea of selling the mop on QVC. But she's saying, no, you really can't have Joan Rivers or whoever sell it. I need to be there to sell it. And you yourself said that in the United States, as a democratic like country, we're getting, and she's talking about this reality phenomenon, isn't she? We're getting to the point where every single person could be on TV to sell something or to do something, which is so interesting, kind of that story within the story as we're talking about it. But um, do you see how her grit? Of course it's played by J-Law. Of course she's this tough um, housewife who's single mom, and she's going to make it work, and she does. She convinces him, and they go. it goes huge. It wasn't selling before this conversation with him, and then it starts to go big. And you see that toughness played out throughout the rest of the film. So it's good on one level, this kind of narrative, the can-do narrative, because it helps us think, okay, there is a sense of justice in the world. Hard work can pay off. It does pay off. 
ingenuity, strength of character, are good things we hope that are rewarded somehow in the world. But we know, don't we, that this is not the full story. And scripture bears witness to this fact. Scripture bears witness to the fact that the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper. When we think about the, um, the story of Job, who experienced so much suffering, and his friends came and sat with him and said, what did you do wrong? Because clearly, you, if you were totally righteous, then only good things would have happened to you. But you must have done something really bad for this really bad stuff to happen to you. And the whole story of Job, it's very long. It's a long book of the Bible. But as you get through it, and I'm going to read some of it in our next section, as you get through it, you realize, no, that's actually not what God thinks. That's actually not the way he set up the world. And it's frustrating sometimes. We hear it also in the Gospels where the disciples asked Jesus about the Tower of Siloam, which was this great tragedy that happened. And let me just read to you from Luke chapter 13. There were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Suffering is incomprehensible. We don't know what's going on. Um, We don't know why some suffer and others don't. We don't know why the wicked prosper, and sometimes um, righteousness does not pay off in this lifetime. But this is the reality that we see until Jesus returns. And scripture bears witness to the end of all things, that in the end, justice will be served. And that we can, when we worry about this and we think, well, why even try hard? Why even work hard? Why, why, why strive and struggle like she is doing? Well, there is justice in the world at the end of all things, even when we don't see it today. We can trust that there, as it says in Revelation 20, that there will be a great white throne and one who is seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found from them. And then the dead, great and small, were standing before the throne and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they were done. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. There it is, right there in Revelation 20. There will be judgment at the end. There will be a sense in which justice is meted out, in which every wicked action is taken care of. Um, And so within that, there is some hope for us when we see justice not being served in our lifetime. But we have to remember when we think about that, if you're like me, you have a thrill of fear thinking about that great judgment day because the very truth of it when we look at these can-do stories we think that's me I can do I, I could do that and then when we're honest with ourselves we realize I haven't done that I'm sitting on a couch I'm not going to train to be the next American Ninja Warrior <laughs> or maybe my dance skills aren't quite up there the way I thought they were and I won't be on so you think you can dance maybe all of my bright ideas are not going to sell millions of mops and make my family lots of money. Maybe I'm not like that. Or even more so when it comes to our sin, we realize in the words that Paul uses from the Psalms and Romans, 
None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This story of joy is the story of the American dream realized, and yet the American dream is not realized for everyone. And this idea of it's good to look up to that model and to say, wow, especially for our kids, and to say, you know, there are times when it really does pay off to work hard and to have really creative ideas and to get them out there, but sometimes it doesn't. And so to be there with them when it doesn't work out, to be there remembering the witness of Scripture in that. Um, this Also this extreme self-reliance. If we were to say it's all about me and all that I do determines everything that I have, we'll be so devastated. That extreme self-reliance prevents a healthy reliance on others and upon God himself. So any questions about that, um, this idea of the can-do narrative that we find a lot of times in the stories that are told in our culture, in the people that we're told to look up to. Anything about that? I've been reading a lot about the founding fathers, and you see that a lot in those stories, too. They were so amazing. They were so great. And then there's the counter-narrative. No, they weren't. They were terrible. And then you end up still, at the end of the day, being like, they did a lot of really cool stuff. They really did well for themselves. Um, any thoughts or questions about that before we go on to the second narrative? Yeah, Gene. Is there anything to, I mean, there's the kind of revulsion of I can't believe they did that. But I feel like a lot of the shows also encourage us to be very kind of like judgmental of, I mean, like we put ourselves in the judge's seat. Well, you know, they were really kind of off-pitched there, or they didn't do that, you know, spin quite yeah. right. And so I feel like it encourages, like, a judgmental attitude, which I think sometimes can bleed over into my life. Like, yeah, I don't know why my coworker did that paper that way. And they're real, you know, it just, it encourages yeah. that habit. You sit there for an hour, like, totally. Rooting for people and judging the others. And yeah. Doesn't seem like it's most. No, absolutely. And I think, too, I mean, even when you look at the romantic shows, too, The Bachelor it makes me want to throw up every time because it's like the competition. Oh, it's awful. Oh. Um, but yeah, I agree. And then we're going to get to that in the next section, on um, which I've called the, um, They Shouldn't Have, or They Did, but They Shouldn't Have. When you're looking at the screen and you're, you're it's the. Um, it's the soap opera phenomenon. Don't do it, don't do it. Or I can't believe she did that. Or no, don't, you know, you know that kind of phenomenon. Exactly that judgment. I think that when we're, we want to be optimistic, I do think that cynics are disappointed idealists and optimists. And so there's this part of us that wants to look up to it. And that's why I point out with our children, there is this optimism. And it's good to encourage it and to be there when it's disappointed and to help them through that. So I think you're right. I think there is that. There is something more than just this looking at to these ideals that are put out there. So, yeah, Carol. I, I thought since this phenomenon um, has come, al- come along, that it seems to me that as soon as you turn on a camera, it's no longer reality. Yeah. Playing to the oh yeah, no, they totally so, are. This is not reality. No, they really are, and it's it's all about fame. They want to be famous. That I really have this theory that the old American dream was work hard and it'll pay off and you can get ahead and your family's going to be better off because you've worked hard. The new American dream is get famous and get rich from getting famous, which is so, do whatever you can to get famous and rich, which, and as little as you can, in fact, to get famous and rich. Well, okay, so let's look on, move on to great comments and questions. Thank you. To, they did, but they shouldn't have. And this is the dark side to stories of success. 
And it helps us see this, this answer. Remember how I was talking about Job and his companions? Well, Job finally responds to them. Well, he's responding all along. But in chapter 21, he, he talks about why do the wicked prosper? He says, no, it's not a, an equation of righteousness equals well-being and prosperity and, and wickedness and misdeeds equal judgment and suffering in this life. He says, why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? Their offspring are established in their presence, and their descendants safe. Uh, the, their descendants before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear, and no rod of God is upon them. Think, just look, just look at the world, and see how some some of these um, misdeeds cause people to prosper. And so, with that in mind, there were two movies that came out this year. I'm going to show you the first one, a trailer for the first one. Or they're not this year, they're in recent years, but they were just so, so perfect for them. This one, they'll all be much louder. Mark Zuckerberg, who founded Facebook, who is the youngest billionaire in the world, um, who basically, when you see, what would you say about the film? What do you learn about Mark Zuckerberg throughout the film, Valerie? What was your impression? Do you mind me putting you on the spot like this? Is that okay? I kind of dig it because I'm, I blur. I'm a blurred person. Yeah. And I don't like to see 
and uh, I'm better. I'm, I'm, I'm repenting as a person. But he just, he's very direct. Uh, he has, he's smart. He's very direct. Yeah. Uh, he says what is on his mind. And as I'm saying, <coughs> when you think about it, Facebook is, is him. It's his creation. Yeah. Because it has allowed us not to um, temper our comments or um, edit ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, he has made it, I think, Facebook and his idea, the way his personality is, has made mm-hmm. it okay to say whatever you want to say. Yeah. Because that's my right. Right. To say, um, it, yeah. when, when there should be Absolutely, and I would totally agree with that. And you see that especially in the beginning. He, a girl breaks up with him, and he at the very beginning of the film, and he's blogging about the breakup and drinking while blogging and writing some terrible thing out there on the internet. And that's where I would say the internet does that. The internet gives us sort of this um, it's removal of the consequences of our of some of those real honest things that we might be thinking but that we wouldn't necessarily say in person it's much easier in the anonymity of the internet to write it and so you see him doing that while he's also creating the the precursor to facebook which was a mashup of different girls from harvard which girl is cuter and you had to click on which picture and that's the site that got 22,000 hits so it just in one day, in two hours. And so, and he goes on from there to, does he steal the idea for it? Does he, um, and you're, you're not clear by the end, but you could form your own opinion. Does he cut out his best friend and original partner of the business, the real financial backer of the business when it started in college? Yes, and he does so in a really, in a way that shows how threatened he is by his friend and some of his friend's ways of, his friend is more successful socially than he is and he hates that about him and you see it in very subtle ways and things he does it's it's what's so sad about it is that he alienates the people that care about him the most the opportunities for real relationship and so um there's something about that seeing that none of us are billionaires and so seeing that on the screen does exactly that it makes us say well, <laughs> I might not have made a billion dollars, but I think I have one friend and another person who likes, who actually likes me. And so um, just the juxtaposition between that real social connection in person versus the online internet connection of a thousand, you know, five million, 500 million friends on Facebook. So we see that on that. This social comparison is there present in the social network when we watch the social network movie. Um, they're warning, it's a warning tale, a parable to us of what can happen when we sacrifice love and the people closest to us for success. So I'm going to show you another one that's very similar. You're not an engineer. You're not a designer. You can't put a hammer to a nail. I built the circuit board. The graphical interface was stolen. So how come, ten times in a day, I read Steve Jobs as a genius? What do you do? (laughs) Musicians play their instruments. I play the orchestra. I hear the 
table this morning. I didn't think that was possible. It's a system error. Fix it. Fix it? Yeah. We're not a pit crew at Daytona. This can't be fixed in seconds. You didn't have seconds. You had three weeks. The universe was created in a third of that time. Well, someday you'll have to tell us how you did it. <laughs> I'm begging you to manage expectations out there. You see how this reminds you of a friendly face? It's warm and it's playful and inviting and it needs to say hello. If you keep alienating people for no reason, there'll be no one left for it to say hello to. Your Apple stock is worth $441 million. While your daughter and her mother are on welfare. She's not my daughter! You must be able to see that she looks like you. You're issuing contradictory instructions. You're insubordinate. You make people miserable. You think that were true? Doesn't sound that diabolical to me. We've spoken to the fire marshal and the building manager. They're going to come in and tell everyone to leave. If the fire causes a stampede to the unmarked exits, it'll have been well worth it for those who survive. The board believes you're no longer necessary to this company. I sat in the garage and invented the future. Because artists leave and pack that for show of hands. You're being ridiculous. I'm gonna sit center court and watch you do it yourself. Make everything all right with Lisa. <laughs> Another very well written, well directed film that also leaves you saying, wow, thank goodness I'm not like other people. I guess on one level, it gives us that comparison. What a successful man. And this story really goes into, it shows him before three big launches um, over a span of 15 years. And you see him gradually alienating um, the people he works with, of course, but then also his um, only father figure and his daughter who's definitely his daughter, but he just, you know, you know, doesn't say she's his daughter for a while. It just is fascinating, but what I would say, the difference between The Social Network and this film, a lot of similar themes about control, about um, that outward image and desiring there to be this illusion of friendliness, the computer saying hello, but this, um, this lack of personal responsibility for relationships and a lack of relating to the people that could really help the person the most. It's tragic. But one of the things I would say about this one and, and is that if you've seen, how many people have seen this one? Ooh, just, ooh, just a couple of us. Um, this one I'd say there's, it seems as though things might get better a little bit towards the end. So it's a little more hopeful, <laughs> I would say, honestly. And, but, so what we see in this, again, is this social comparison. It's a warning tale to us of valuing success over love and relationship with the people closest to us. Okay, so now any questions about this idea of um, they did but they shouldn't have, this idea of um, uh, someone that we might look up to and we have these films, you might think, wow, that Mark Zuckerberg, he really made it in business, or Steve Jobs is amazing and has this cult following. Then looking at these stories, these exposés, looking into their lives and looking at how they really have been, it's a little bit of that voyeurism, right, opening the curtain and looking into their lives. And it's also that comparison, helping us to say, hopefully in a constructive way, hopefully not in a way that where cynicism overtakes us, but hopefully in a constructive way, 
maybe, maybe I don't want to be like that after all. Yeah, Carol. I don't think they made a movie about Bill Gates. He's still alive, maybe? Steve Jobs died, right? So, yeah, so, yeah, he is alive. I, I mean, but he knew he could make a lot of money off that movie. spread their wealth around some, and is, is that just too boring? There was a TBS movie about him that did not look good at all. Oh, really? I'm sure, I have a feeling but that he didn't look as good in it either, but yeah. Yeah, it just makes me wonder, I don't want to yeah. you know, play devil's advocate here or anything, but you know, it just seems to me success a lot of times kind of promotes the opposite side. People want to come out and say, he's a success, but... Yeah, know, yeah, and, that's true. And, and it seems like that garners a whole lot more interest than somebody he's successful, plus he's got a great family and this and that. Yeah, yeah. It just doesn't sell very well. Yeah, it does. And you have a lot of people that really want to root against somebody that's successful, yeah. it seems to me. Well, it's true, and that's the way, as human beings, that's how we deal with the ideal. When we're confronted with something that seems ideal, just look at how Jesus, who really was the only perfect one, was treated by people rejected him. And it says it in the Gospel of John. He came to those, uh, he came to his own, and they rejected him. And there's something about that phenomenon we want to take someone down a peg um, because we see ourselves compared to them it's that social comparison and we say I'm not like that I'm not that good at that or maybe at anything I just will never forget meeting one of my sister's friends when I was living in New York who's an opera singer and is one of the most beautiful people I've ever met has this gorgeous color Torah soprano voice like you would not believe it's just all around amazing and he wanted to hate her you just really wanted to be like, oh, I'm sure she's a jerk. She's stuck up. But she was just the sweetest, most delightful Christian. Really, truly amazing. And so it was just very humbling in a good way for me to just say, well, the Lord knows her heart. And her heart's not perfect, and we know that. And, but we can just give it to the Lord and leave it there. But, yeah, I think you're right. Any, yeah, one more. I, I, just, I kind of worry. I worry for all this. But I worry for this group, you know, for your children. For the age that is growing up under this comparative microscope, yeah, that um, it's hard at any age. It's hard at any age to mm-hmm. rationalize this is not what's real. To, yeah, to to hang on to your faith that we know we are taught <coughs> as Christians we're taught what's real. Yeah, or we're we're led to to follow a different example. But this constant bombardment. And this constant, this constant, you know, ranking by what school did you go to? Sure. You know. Yeah. Uh, what degree do you have? Mm-hmm. You know, what? How much money are you going to make? We, we actually don't. We've never known for the next what's going to happen in the next five minutes. Yeah. And and yet you're you're sending kids into this, you know, funnel of criticism and, and, and you know pecking order. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where, again, that's where the social network is really fascinating because it deals with this phenomenon encapsulated within the founder's life of the perception people have of you out there. And I think it's true. I think some comparison is inevitable, but of course for our children in this electronic age where their Facebook image is a lot of who they are or who they identify themselves as, we want to continue to ground them in their identity in Christ. And that's really one of the things we can do as parents is just 
you know, it's not because you're good at soccer that I love you. It's not because of this. It's not because of that. And that's not why God loves you. It's because of nothing you've done. <laughs> and you belong to him, and you're totally his. And that's all you are. That's all that matters about who you are. And there are so many other good things that you can do and that you will do, but that is the most important thing and the only thing that will never change. And that can be so good and reassuring for them to hear. And I want to get to some of the good news in my third section. Finally, <laughs> 10 minutes left. Um, this is They Can't Do Help. And uh, my first, I have two films in here that just really struck me as being part of this narrative. And the first one might not feel like good news. So bear with me for a minute as we watch the trailer. I want to ask you what part of the country you come from. I live here from Canada. I guess where that is. Oh, I know where Canada is. I've been there myself. Well, travel for a slave. Solomon Northup is an excellent player on the violin. I was born a free man. Live with my family in New York. Be good for your money. Until the day I was deceived. To Solomon. Kidnapped. Sold into slavery. Boy, how you feel now? My name is Solomon North. I'm a free man. And you have no right whatsoever to detain me. You're no free man. You're nothing but a Georgian runaway. We're down to the river Jordan. Let servant, the old man's lord, shall be beaten with many stripes. That's scripture. The condition Michael of your land is all wrong. They're my property. You say that with pride. I say it as fact. Straight. Man does how he pleases with his property. <laughs> you come here. I said come here. Days ago I was with my family and my home. Now you tell me all this off. If you want to survive, do and say as little as possible. I saw the rising. But I want to survive. I want to live. You know something. I did as instructed. There's something wrong. It's wrong with the instruction. Master Bobby, you work. Anymore, I'll earn you a hundred lashes. I know what it's like to be the object of Master's lash. No! In his own time. Good luck, manage him all. I must survive! I will not fall into despair! I will keep myself hard until freedom's up to I can't even show the trailer because I didn't grow up in the South. Like, it's not fair for me to show the trailer. It's hard, and it's one of those movies where you think, well, I don't want to see that. I want to go see something good. I want to see something uplifting. What I will say about this extraordinary true story, as it says about it, is, you know, the trailer makes it seem as though it's his hopefulness that makes him so amazing. It's his, um, he wasn't, he didn't give up. And yeah, he didn't give up. He kept seeking for his freedom. But um, the unparalleled pain and suffering of Solomon Northrop and those around him, it's so hard to witness. But the, his salvation does come. I mean, it's 12 years a slave, not the rest of his life a slave. So you know it's coming. There is salvation in this movie. He is rescued. 
And his rescue is like an airlift rescue. It happened so abruptly, almost too abruptly. I think that's why it didn't win as many Oscars as it could have. It happened so abruptly that you're thinking, wait, what? He was just in a really bad situation. Now he's going home? What's going on? This is how quickly it happens. And it's totally, his salvation is wrought totally by someone else um, willing to risk themselves in order to bring about his freedom. So it's just a beautiful salvation story right in there. And I think about that as Christians. When we think about our lives, when we think that we're okay, we just need to get by with a little help from God, it's not true. In our sin, we are as enslaved as Solomon Northrup was. In our sin, we're shackled to our fallen selves. And the Lord is so gracious in sending us a Savior who comes in, an airlift rescue in Jesus Christ, and we're bought up and out of that. One more. And this is my favorite one of all of them. Excuse me. Can I help you today? I'd like to buy a car. Hi, I'm Dr. Eugene Whaley. What do you know about this movie? Barney Wilson. Oh, the Beach Boys. Ah. Come on, Brown, get around. I get around. Yeah, get around, Brown, Brown. We both grew up in California. My brother, Steve, dance by the car. I to my brothers, and we'd all say, listen to me, I'm going on and on. What about you? Why don't you have a bunch of He broke my heart. You shouldn't have done that. When you hear the new Beatles, we can't let them get ahead of us. Got all kinds of new ideas, new sounds, new instruments. You think we could get a horse in here? We played with Eddie, Sinatra, Elvis, Beatles, blown out of us. If you want to continue to see him, you should know Brian is a very, very sick man. I don't face it. I didn't tell you. I know what's away. The talking in your head, that's part of the song? Jesus Christ, playing the music. You are not playing the music. Get up on the Brian, time for your pills. Come on. to meet your thoughts, your feelings, and his thoughts, his feelings, I'm getting unprecedented access. He's a medical guardian. He's protected now. He's over-medicated. Can you swim? Brian will not be able to see you anymore. You can't do that, Jane. Yes, I can. I have to say to myself five times a day, I love you. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Sometimes I wish I had somebody else to say it. The same reason, man, that you cannot be with anybody. I'm gonna beat this and I'm gonna beat you! You need to get back to your life. Another story of ultimate salvation, that coming in, um, breaking through. Brian Wilson suffered from some mental illness that was also probably drug-induced. And he also had been in, caught, trapped in a cycle of abuse. A very abusive father who'd been their um, manager for a little while. 
and it just cycled around. Judgment weighed so heavily upon him. Um, this draw towards the judgment, both from his father, then from his cousin Mike, who's also in the band, and then finally from Paul Giamatti's character in the 80s, Dr. Landy, who had just was total a total authoritarian psychiatrist who had taken over every aspect of his life. And what you see, there is salvation in this, trust me. I won't go into it too much in detail because I know you're going to enjoy watching it yourselves. But there is one moment of mercy you saw a little bit in there. Um, this accomplished dr- drummer sits with Brian outside after their recording session for Pet Sounds, and he affirms his genius. He says, um, he asks how Brian is doing, tough day at the office, and he says, well, my family's coming in tomorrow, the band. Well, sometimes they're tough, you know. Pet Sounds is one of their best albums, but it was so different from anything else they had ever made. And the band had all, his brothers had all been off performing on tour, and they came home, and he's knowing, he knows that there will be judgment from them. And this, um, this other guy, this famous drummer, says to him, let me tell, me tell you something. We're all pros, you know. We've played with everyone, heard it all. You name them, we've played with them. Sinatra, Dean Martin, Elvis, Phil Spector, Sam Cooke, everyone. And we all studied in conservatories. But you know, you got to know that you're a touched kid. You've blown our minds. And he goes, more than Phil Spector? And he goes, Phil's got nothing on you. There are moments like grace expressed through that drummer, expressed through Melinda, who comes into his life in the 80s. And it's a true story of love and mercy. The title is so accurate, of real hope, of a real breaking in, that voice from outside of ourselves, that voice of love breaking in, um, breaking into the cycle of our pain and suffering and sin. And so I commend it to you. With that in mind, let's pray. Dear Lord God, thank you for um, the stories and um, things that our culture tells us. Thank you, Lord, for the people we look up to. And ultimately, Lord, thank you for the way that um, these stories show us and remind us of how much we need you and how you are ever ready to save, ever present to, um, to deliver us. And so we ask now that you would send us out with hope, trusting in your faithfulness um, today and this week and forever. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.